This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host for this week's episode, Paul Jaisley, filling in for Mike Rappin, who is currently trapped in the bottle city of Candor. Don't worry, we have a rescue team out to go get him back, but he'll be back next week. Uh, but I am here in the host chair, joined by two superhuman courtroom stenographers, uh, Tia Vasilio. Hello. And Kate Lamphere. My superpower is shorthand. <laughs> That's a handy one, as one of the more useful superpowers to have. Especially for stenographer. A- absolutely. I've been really, um, a- against my better judgment, maybe really enjoying She-Hulk. So I've been thinking about other s- superpowered courtroom heroes. So that's a discussion for another time. We are here to talk about our comic book grievances. We'll get to that later in the show, but I'm going to start off things with the two questions I'm legally mandated to ask as the host for this episode. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kate. Yeah, I actually have a little bit of uh, current news, which we don't usually do very much on the show, but this one's kind of personal to me, so I wanted to talk about it. (laughs) Uh, You may have seen the news from Michigan that the Patmos Library was defunded by its residents. This is in Jamestown, Michigan, and Patmos is spelled P-A-T-M-O-S, and it was defunded for carrying LGBT books and refusing to take them off the shelves like the superheroes that librarians are. <laughs> and the specific books listed uh, include Genderqueer by Mayo Kobabe and Spinning by Tilly Walden. I talked about Genderqueer the last time that I was on the show. Uh, so this is all kind of <laughs> uh, wrapping back around for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and as far as I know, this is an, an an independent library that's not associated with the county library like most library systems are. That means that this library exists because the residents sometime in the past very specifically wanted it and needed it. And Mm -hmm. just as a reminder, libraries don't only offer books. They offer access to the internet, job training materials, a cool place for people who can't afford air conditioning. And it's one of the very few places that people can be without paying money. And this is literally down the road from me. If I if we had bought a place just a few miles east of here, this would be my local library. Uh, so, first of all, I, I, yeah, and Mike Mike grew up not far from there too. Oh. Um, so, first of all, I wanted to mention that there is a GoFundMe. This, I mean, just Google it because GoFundMe links aren't great to read. <laughs> so, P A T M O S Library. Um, also, you know, like I always say on the show, support your local library, tell them that you appreciate them, write them emails or handwritten notes, just thank a librarian. And I wanted to say that if you can't donate actual like reoccurring donations, libraries um, will also usually accept just like used books that they'll sell during library sales. Mm-hmm. And um, they, <laughs> my library at least has this great thing where they will sell all of those used books for like $3 a bag a couple times mm-hmm. a year. Yep. So there are cheaper ways to support your local library other than just money. Um, so. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, we talked about banned books a couple episodes ago, and this one hit close to home, literally. So right here in Michigan, it's still happening. So uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, to talk about actual comics today, I'm going to start with something else that's difficult to talk about. Okay. <laughs> really, <laughs> really bringing down the show just immediately. Um, this is a book called Wake, the, the History of Women-Led Slave Revolts. This is by Rebecca Hall with art by Hugo Martinez. And this is Stephanie's pick for the Goodreads Reading Challenge. And it's the last book for me to read um, for the Reading Challenge this year that was uh, suggested by our Patreon patrons. I still have a few to go to hit my number, but 
I've uh, I've recommend or I've read everybody's ever everybody's recommendations. So it's very exciting. It's been a great challenge. Yeah. This book follows Rebecca Hall on her journey to research uh, the the way that women were involved in slave revolts, and she travels from California to the East Coast and then to London, and it covers the difficulties she faces, like as well as the fact that women were often excluded from um, historical records just due to you know the patriarchy. <laughs> Males, male record keepers didn't think women were important enough to write about. And, uh, you know, she's she's not really delicate about talking about that, which I, I actually found a little funny. Um, so there is some like humor levity in this book. Also, the art is black and white with no gray shading. It, that was a little rough to get used to. Like you've got these big, big areas of black um, mm-hmm. next to big areas of white. And it's kind of a lot. But otherwise, the subjects and the panels are really good. I particularly wanted to talk about some panels where like the creator will be walking down a modern street and then in the reflections of the windows and the puddles, you see enslaved people in a historical uh, setting in the same physical place. And it was just it was really cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a bummer, but also like (laughs) what a good idea to really show how like how people how those people built what we have today and how it uh, affects modern day but in it in addition to including information about her own family and her findings in her research there's also information about the slave trade itself and corrections of the right of the white perceptions of slavery that are still common today Um, so of course there's like I wanted to say that there's a con- there's content warnings for slavery, violence, mentions of suicide, sexual assault. Like it's not an easy book to read, but it is it's a really good book. And I think it's a really important book. So, yeah, um, that's that's Wake, the history of women led slave revolts. Um, and it was a great pick, Stephanie. Thanks for the suggestion. Tia, what have you been reading? Hi. I read Golden Rage uh, numbers one and two, which is the new image series by Chrissy Williams, Lauren Knight, Sophie Dodgson, and Becca Carey. Uh, The premise is that menopausal women are sent away to an island where apparently like roving bandits of dangerous gangs um, of like other older ladies are gonna, I don't know, kill you maybe? Um, It seems... (laughs) very unpleasant to be yeah it's not it's not like a oh you know you've like served your time as a woman of childbearing years go have like a nice retirement on this lovely tropical island i think the tagline for it is golden girls meets battle royale so um (laughs) yeah (laughs) and the story follows a group of like seemingly peaceful ladies uh who are just trying to maybe live their life and they take in a younger woman who was sent to the island for going through early menopause. Um, and the, the there's like a protector. So like there's like different archetypes of the ladies in this group, right? And there's one who's kind of the brute. Uh, she's the protector. And so she like rescues this older lady or this younger lady from one of the one of the gangs. And so far, I really like it. I think it's a good character-driven story. Like, we see hints of complexity in the story and, like, things to come through little hints about the stories uh, or the characters, like, backstories and, um, like, who they were before they came to the island, what kind of life they've made for themselves on the island before presumably these, like, terrible gangs of of other women have come and brutalized them and um there are so many cats which you know is 
is delightful. I'm like, hmm, this place is this island, maybe somewhere in the Mediterranean, which is a place known for just like tons of cats. Uh-huh. <laughs> like if you go to Turkey or Greece or something. I also really like the artwork. I think that it has like a really strong aesthetic, like really consistent. The color palette is really good at conveying the setting and the tone and and kind of moving the story in a subtle way. And it's really good character acting, which you definitely need for this kind of story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like just kind of more generally, I love seeing books about older women and especially one that is about the specific ways older women are just discarded by society. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I also love that they're presented as full human beings, they're heroes, they're protagonists, they're love interests, they're like, you know, there's the gentle sweetheart, there's the really formidable bruiser. And as a woman who is officially of quote unquote invisible age, um, <laughs> I have to say that I'm really surprised by how much I love like aging honestly. And um, especially being in isolation during the pandemic, it's really given me an opportunity to like divest from the idea that my power as a human being comes from being wanted by men for looking like a a teenager that they would like to, uh, you know, anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's like this really actually amazing freedom in being invisible. And I kind of wish I'd realized that sooner in life. Um, that like the power of being wanted by men is actually fake, right? And then they take it away when you turn 40 and you spend the rest of your years like policing younger women and putting Botox in your face, which is really not a great way to spend your energy. You still have like a lot of life in you. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of intrinsic power that you just give up if that's all all you think you you have in life. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that I think that we can unpack that and demystify aging in is like centering older women and talking about how they're valued or devalued in society and telling stories about them and letting them be the protagonist, right? Um, Mm -hmm. They're always the side character. They're always the background. They're always the support. And so um, one of the things I love about this book is that like other women are thinking about this other women are gonna read about it um i don't know it just it doesn't seem like we talk about it enough as women right yeah so i i would love to see this be like bitch planet was where it becomes Mm. a focal point a rallying cry i think it's this is actually a great companion piece to bitch planet like they're sort of like really high level kind of similar concept right like women are ostracized for being whatever not what society wants them to be in this really uh like patriarchal and demeaning way. Um, and they're both just kind of looking at different ways that women are treated. And um, yeah, like I love that. I love, I think we need more of that and it's great. I really recommend it. Yeah. I'm this, I didn't know about this book and now I'm gonna have to go check it out. I'm looking at the artwork. It looks lovely. And yeah, like you said, it's a timely and important topic. So yeah, thanks for uh, making me add that to my to read list. So, And if you buy floppies, the variant cover <laughs> for issue two, the Allison Sampson variant cover, it's like a, an homage to Gustav Klimt. And it's really beautiful. Oh, Ooh, yeah. nice. Okay. I'll keep my eyes peeled for that for sure. How about you, Paul? What have you been reading? Oh, I have been catching up on a big stack of comics. Um, I've finally, after finally finishing doing the Better Batmobile series for the Patreon, I finally feel like I have more free time to read the books I've been accumulating 
uh, by going to the shop every few weeks. So I've been trying to uh, hammer away at that big pile of comics I have. So I've been reading. So comics are a few weeks old at this point, but I just finished uh, Detective Comics number 1063. This is the second part of the Gotham Nocturne storyline from the new creative team of Ram V uh, writing and Raphael Albuquerque on artwork. Dave Stewart's doing the colors and the letterer is Ariana Marr. And I want to give a special shout out to the cover artist for these issues. The main covers are being done by Evan Cagle. Um, and the covers and the new logo that they're using for Detective Comics really make it feel like a standalone sort of complete shift in tone for the comic. You know, I really liked... The previous creative team, that was uh, Rico Tamaki and uh, Dan Mora, fabulous team doing some super heroic stuff on Detective Comics. This is a much more, I don't know, they use, keep using the term operatic when they're describing it. And it totally works because it's, it's a dark story. Uh, there's themes of supernatural things happening in Gotham. They're really leaning into the demonic supernatural aspect of Batman as a character. And it really feels like a dramatic shift in tone. Uh, for a Batman comic, which I really appreciate. Um, the main story is following Batman um, as he is sort of investigating something in the air in Gotham. He can tell that something's changed in the city and things feel darker. There's a there's something happening and he can't quite put his finger on it. And um, there's hints that it's connected to a demonic force, Barbatos, if you've been following along with the uh, Better Batmobile series. That's a uh, character and a concept that Graham Morrison introduced in their Batman comics, this demonic bat spirit that's been haunting Gotham. Um, on top of that, Batman's discovered that there's a connection between this dark feeling in the city at the time and an ancient uh, music box that he finds as playing this sort of dark, um, moody music. And he contacts the maestro, one of his former rogues, uh, to kind of investigate the connection between this music and the tone of the city. It's a really interesting book. I, I love it when creative teams lean into that type of supernatural aspect to the character. And if you want a Batman comic that doesn't feel like a typical superhero comic, this might be the place for you. It's, it's moody. It's dark. It's gothic in the best possible way. Um, I'm really, really enjoying this new creative team. So I, I, I'm enjoying this issue so far for the series. I think we need to introduce an IRCB drinking game where you take a <laughs> shot anytime we are talking about Batman and say dark. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't want to be responsible liver. for anyone's alcohol poisoning. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that would be be a dangerous game. Um, no, I, f I feel like a lot of times Batman, you get the grim, dark, moody, you know, um, character. This is a different type. This is gothic in a way that, you know, if you like wearing a lot of black clothes and you listen to certain sorts of music, you'd appreciate this this type of gothic Batman. It's not just a typical brooding character. It's it. It's good stuff. Again, I think the, the the descriptor of operatic feels odd, but because there's so many music references in the, the text, it does make sense to me. Yeah, no, like when I think of operatic and dark and yeah. all of what you're talking about, like there's like a, almost a, a pageantry to mm -hmm. it, to the mm -hmm. darkness that does, I, I see what you're saying. It does seem a little bit more... Uh, I don't want to say sophisticated in a judgment way that makes no. other types of Batman seem like less good. That's not how I mean yeah. it, but just mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't mean, I mean, I celebrate any type of Batman story. I like the colorful, super heroic Adam West stuff. And I like the dark brooding, you know, stuff like this street level stuff. So I, I celebrate all Batman comics. Totally. Um, like yeah, you have this is, you have fun good. at a musical and at the opera. It's just different. 
exactly. You can't have you can't have one type of Batman story. You need to change it up. So there you go. Hundred um, percent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, Kate? What's something else you've been reading? Yeah, and a complete uh, tonal shift for this episode, at least for me. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I I read a manga called Giant Spider and Me: A Post Apocalyptic Tale, Volume One. This is by Kikoro Minoro, and this is a manga about a girl living alone in a very nice house in the woods, and she's out foraging for food one day and meets, you got it, a giant spider that follows her home. And somehow, this is an apocalypse. There's not a not very many other people around, and yet this girl has some really specific ingredients, and she's she's able to make these really delicious meals that she makes for both she and the spider. And they bond over cooking and food. This is a food manga somehow, as well as an apocalypse manga and like a kaiju manga. (laughs) 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 Um, There are directions and recipes for those meals in this book. So you can like follow along and like make these things. I took pictures of the recipes. They all look really good. And the the world building is is it's definitely soft world building. There's not a whole lot of details about where other people are or what happened to this world or how she has all of these really good ingredients. Um, but it was it was a really fun read. Uh, and I I paused in my reading a few times to tell Brian things like, the spider is grinding coffee beans, or like, the spider <laughs> has earned an honorific. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I've read this one, actually. And you're right, it is charming. Yeah, I was not expecting to be this delighted by like yeah. a random library find. <laughs> <laughs> There are only three volumes in this series, so it's very fair to say I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, so that's wow. The Giant Spider and Me. And uh, <laughs> Paul, it looks like you yes. also read a manga. I did read a manga. Wow. Look at me. Now, here, if you're playing the drinking game at home, if I read a manga and talk about it, you have to down the b- whole bottle from your uh, <laughs> you're currently oh, imbibing no. <laughs> uh No, I did read a manga, and it's a little out of my wheelhouse uh, uh, for listeners, long-time listeners probably know. Uh, but this was recommended to me. Uh, it was No Longer Human, which is by Junji Ito. Um, and it's actually um, an adaptation of a Japanese novel. So the original text uh, was published in 1948 by the celebrated Japanese author Osamu Dazai. And um, it's one of the most famous novels in Japanese history. It, it has been adapted in other manga before, in anime, in film. And this is kind of like one of the more recent adaptations. Uh, Junji Ito published this back in 2017. Um, it took me a long time to read this book, not because I didn't like it, but it was very, very heavy. This is a very depressing story. It, I actually had to kind of put it down for a few weeks to come back to it because it was just so heavy tonally and thematically. Um, a lot of content warnings for uh, sexual abuse and um, uh, suicide. So it made it, it's not a, a very uplifting story, but I, what I appreciated about it was the way Ido made all of those things, made the, the uh, importance or the heavy aspects of the comic visual. Like it's visually very interesting. The visual storytelling that Ido does, if you've read any of his other stuff, you know, it's, can be very graphic and over the top, but it really fit for this story because the, the main story follows a character named Oba Ozo. And he's a pr- person that has trouble expressing his true inner self to other people. And it comes off as being very cavalier and uncaring. He's kind of alienated himself from society and he's trying to navigate what to do with his life. He's a, he's a gifted artist, but he decides to do manga instead. But he goes through a series of tragic romances and friendships that more than once lead to his partner committing suicide. Um, he falls into alcoholism. 
Um, he has a failed suicide attempt himself. Um, he ends up in a mental institution. And this is kind of where the story got interesting to me. I mean, again, it's I thought it was well done, but it's very, very difficult subject matter to read. But in Ito's version, at the end of the book, he goes to a mental institution and actually meets the author of the novel, Osamu Desai. And when I did my research about you know the, the original author of the original book, it turns out Desai also suffered with a lot of mental issues. Uh, he had attempted suicide several times in his life. And the book No Longer Human was his final book because he killed himself shortly after it was finished. And it's really viewed as almost being a semi-autobiographical confession, his life. So the fact that Ido has the main character of the book basically tell his story to the author who writes the original book, I like that sort of meta-narrative move that happened there. Um, it made the book a lot more engaging than just being a series of really, really tragic romances strung together. Like it kind of tied everything together in a more interesting package for me. So um, I've heard it might not be the best introduction to manga or Ido's work, but I, I'm, I'm curious to read more of their stuff at this point. I thought it was, uh, it, in spite of being a difficult subject matter or difficult uh, story, again, visually stunning and very striking and well-crafted. So there you go. I feel like manga has done a really good job of adapting classics, and it's nice mm. to see that they're not all English classics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, uh, I did the research about you know the the source text, and it seems like again, it's such a classic Japanese novel, and I feel like Ido himself is kind of a celebrated mangata at this point. So his version kind of, it, it was kind of interesting to, to read that. Um, I, I definitely would be more interested in following it up with a story about a giant spider and cooking. Uh, that seems <laughs> right. more up my alley than this book. But uh, no, I, I, overall, I did enjoy it for, for what it was. So um, that's what we've been, have been reading. But of course, there are more comics coming out this week. Comics are dropping uh, on September 16th. Uh, but I'm curious to know what you are interested in reading this week. What's going to be on the top of your pile? Let's throw it back to you, Kate. Yeah, I read into a book called Sailor Twain, The Mermaid of the Hudson. And this is the 10th anniversary edition. So you might have actually read this before, but it's the first time that I'm hearing of it. This is by Mark Seagull. And it's about a riverboat captain that helps an injured mermaid in the busiest port in the U.S. at the time. Um, it is not about uh, Mark Twain, <laughs> but it is that okay. period of okay. history. Um, and I looked up some of the, I guess, the previews, uh, you know, like pages that are online from different editions. Um, and the art is all charcoal, which was very cool. I, I really enjoyed some of the backgrounds in this. Um, but the, the characters look a little cartoonish, which is one of the, the complaints that people had in some of the reviews. Um, but everybody that's, that mentioned it was like, I got used to it and I enjoyed the book. So <laughs> I've also okay. said that about books before. And, uh, the Goodreads reviews look promising, um, and I love historical fantasy, so I think I'll probably be picking up this book. Yeah, Tia, what are you looking forward to? I am looking forward to uh, Castle Full of Blackbirds by Mike Mignola, Angela Slatter, Valeria Burzo, and Wiley Beckert. This, uh, you may have guessed, takes place in the Hellboyverse. Um, mm -hmm. But the description of it kind of read like YA fantasy fiction, Ooh. which I have been absolutely devouring lately. So was super excited to see two of my favorite things in one place because I love Hellboy. Um, and so the premise seems to be that the main character, Sarah, has these mysterious powers and she's seeking guidance from um, one Miss Brooks at the Linton School for Girls. <laughs> uh, I should probably read the 
of Effie Kolb first. Apparently, this is the follow-up. I don't know anything about that book either. But like I said, um, it it's giving way fantasy fiction, and I've been on like a Holly Black tear lately. So um, mm. definitely in the mood for something uh, that is sort of like a Hellboy YA fantasy crossover. Yeah, that sounds really yeah, interesting. That, that, that is interesting, huh? How about you, Paul? I uh, Before we get to my pick, uh, let's shout out some of the people hanging out with us on Discord right now, listening live as we record. We got Danny in the room, and he's excited for Batman versus Robin number one. I'll probably read that one, too, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hannah is going to be reading A Basket Full of Heads, um, and uh, Trailblazing is excited for The Least We Can Do number one. I will be reading on the top of my pile, Do a Powerbomb number four. This is the Image series by Daniel Warren Johnson. Obviously, I love this series because it's about professional wrestling and it's drawn by Daniel Warren Johnson, whose artwork I always really like. And what's great about it is there's a lot of like crappy wrestling themed comics out there. Like for whatever reason, it's really hard to capture what I love about wrestling in a comic book, which seems like a no brainer because it's two of my favorite things. But Johnson's able to really capture the emotional and aesthetic appeal of professional wrestling in this book. Um, it follows the story follows Lona Steel Rose, who is a young wrestler whose mother was tragically killed during a wrestling match. So she's following in her mother's footsteps and she's offered a chance to bring her mother back to life by competing in a tag team tournament. Uh, her partner is Cobra Sun, a masked wrestler who is actually uh, Lona's mother in that tragic match. So he was involved at probably responsible for her, her mother's death. Uh, they have to team up together as part of a big tournament um, that involves other tag teams from other dimensions and other planets. And there's a recurring joke that those other tag teams from other planets and dimensions don't realize that wrestling is predetermined. That's they're really fighting for their lives. So it adds like a layer of um, drama and some higher stakes to the, the matches that um, Cobra Sun and uh, Lona Steel Rose are having. It's a really fun book. I mean, visually, if you're familiar with Daniel Warren Johnson, he draws kinetic action and energy so well. And uh, he really captures that, the action of the wrestling matches. But again, there's a really engaging and emotional story at the core. It's someone trying to bring back someone that they've lost. So I really like that aspect of it too. And it's, it's kind of interesting to read uh, in the first issue in the back matter uh, Johnson mentions that he was not a wrestling fan growing up. He only became a wrestling fan in the past couple of years. Um, he just happened to be flipping through the channels one night and happened to catch a New Japan pro wrestling match and was just totally taken with the pageantry and the aesthetics and the emotion of it. And since then, he's become a huge fan. And I feel like this book feels like someone who's passionate about something, trying to share what makes it so special to them. So that's my pitch. If you're not a pro wrestling fan, but you like comics, Try this book out. I think you will at least appreciate uh, what makes wrestling so appealing to us other fans out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a wrestling fan, but I'm a Daniel Warren Johnson fan. So maybe maybe it's for me. There you go. Yeah, I think this is a great introduction. I think there's even been a few letters in the letters columns of people saying the exact same thing. Like, hey, I hate wrestling. I don't understand it. But this story grabbed me immediately. So there you go. <laughs> so there, yeah. Uh, if uh, that is my challenge to you listeners who are not wrestling fans, give this one a shot. Um, and since Mike is not here, I get to make the rules and I'm going to let Kate have another pick. I'm bending the rules Ooh. for you, Kate. You have another top of my oh, pile pick I see here. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to mention that there is a book coming out that is being officially published by Dark Horse. It was previously independently published and we had gotten a comp of it. 
And I read it and I talked about it on the show like a while back. This is uh, Love and War by Andrew Wheeler. And it's an LGBT sports comic that kind of fits in there with like check please and cheer up love and pom poms. And I only read the first two issues. I really enjoyed them. Um, and I, I never got to finish it. So I'll probably go to my LCS and grab a print copy. Nice. Nice. Well, cool. Uh, yeah. So that being said, let's take a quick break. We come back. We'll be talking about our comic book grievances, revisiting a topic from episode 324. Um, I've got a lot of my mind. I'm sure you both do. So we'll be right back to talk about that. Welcome back. We are here once again to air our comic book grievances. Uh, maybe we'll try to fix them while we're here on air. That's our goal here at I Read Comic Books is to fix comics. So um, again, this is a callback to an episode we did, episode 324. It was me, Mike, and Nick airing our comic book grievances, but we're here with some new ones. Trust me, there's a lot to get through. So uh, I guess to open up the conversation, I'll just open the floor. And if somebody wants to jump in with something that really gets in their craw when they're uh, thinking about comics... <laughs> <laughs> I guess my biggest grievance is that more people need to read comic books. And the the reason <laughs> is that I I don't want to have to worry about backing all of the good Kickstarters and buying all of the good single <laughs> issues in order to support a series. Like I oh. read comics in collections from mostly from the library. So I want them all to succeed so that I can pick them up in like one or two or three or 10 years um, because they were successful and are available. I mean, that definitely gets into the bigger issue of like how comics are solicited and sold and comic shops and availability and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I like that you you have somewhat selfish, you know, reasons for wanting more people to read comics, yeah. not to share the love <laughs> of the art form, but to save yourself some money. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And w when I think about how do I fix this? I mean, the solution yeah. is that I tell more people about comics that they should read. So it's like we mm -hmm. almost need to start a podcast where we do that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Spread the good word of comic. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always so funny to me when I when I'm watching comic book adaptations you know when i'm watching she hulk or i'm watching whatever i'm always baffled why there's not ads for the actual comics before or after the show same thing like if i'm just watching tv it's like why isn't there if i'm watching a show there's advertisements for video games and movies like why don't comic book publishers take out commercials and say hey the the avengers movies make a billion dollars like here's some other <laughs> stuff if you want some more stories like it's always mind-boggling me that there's not more advertising for comics and those they those, don't uh, have money to do that <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah disney doesn't have any loose change to throw to right. some commercials in marvel yeah, yeah. but this entirely different like yeah you know marvel comics doesn't benefit from disney money right fair enough fair enough and i guess i mean that always interesting to me why there there wasn't more advertising for that stuff. I think I can count maybe on one hand the number of times I would go see a comic book superhero movie and there would be an ad before the movie like, hey, check out you know our digital library. And it's like I feel like they don't see that anymore, and it's always kind of baffling to me. But um, oh well. I mean, I feel like the best you get is in Spider Verse where they would have the like where they would introduce the character and then there would be the comic <laughs> book cover. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you, I mean, since Marvel and DC already have digital platforms for their comics, subscription services, it feels like that'd be the most obvious place to turn to people. It's like, hey, you liked the 
the Robert Pattinson Batman movie. Like here's the stories it was based on. Like, I think those, those things do exist on YouTube. Like when you have the creators of the movies talking about stuff that they read or like suggesting stuff, but like, to have it more obvious up front, I think would be a big help to get more people to read stuff. So I don't know. That's just my first thought to your, your point there, Kate, your first solution. I also think that like, we as comic book people need to accept that most people do not want to deal with floppies. Most people don't even want to say the word <laughs> floppy, which just like <laughs> yeah. is disgusting. So, okay, like, can we please mm, maybe create a system by which books, like Kate said, could maybe exist without us having to buy 57 floppies and then we have them all over our house yeah that's yeah that's another point i actually had this a similar thought uh when i was thinking about this topic i like buying monthly comics i like collecting floppies i mean that's kind of just i was raised doing it something i've been doing for a long time i kind of like the format of the 22 page comic but at the same time i feel like especially marvel dc and, and image publish a lot of miniseries that in my mind might be better suited for an OGN. Like instead of a four issue miniseries where I'm paying four issues a pop, four dollars a pop for the comics, just collect it and put it as a collection. And that might make it more appealing to new readers, obviously. And I know those things do get collected eventually, but it seems more cost effective to have them up front. I don't know the logistics of it. I think maybe the real money for publishers is in floppies or, or single issues. I'll, I'll say no, um, no, not at all. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Well, like, there you go. No, yeah. <laughs> it is really only like people like you who collect them and who've like grown up as collectors, which I think is a really different thing from just like readers, like people who yeah. like to read stories and people who like to collect comics, there's overlap, but they're not the same. And like, there's just not enough payoff for I think most readers in a 22 page floppy, they want to lay down with a book and spend an hour reading and there's just not enough there in a floppy. And then sure. what do you do with it? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that format is antiquated. And as much as I, I personally enjoy it, I do understand that it is not something that casual fans are going to get into. Um, so I think the trade system does work having those things collected. But what I would actually really like is to see uh, DC and Marvel just do more OGNs. I know they've yeah. kind of ramped up, especially DC's ramped up their YA titles that are come out as like digests or uh, OGNs. But when I look at Image, like what Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips are doing with their Reckless books, like instead of just doing you know a mi- mini series uh, of of single issues, it's like three times a year they publish a hardcover OGN, and it is a standalone story, but there is you know, a through line through each one, they're interconnected, but you can just pick one up and enjoy it as a singular unit rather than having to buy, you know, a bunch of a handful of 22 page issues, you're going to get a 150 page story that stands alone, but will have a payoff in the next collection. Like that feels almost like an almost European style format yeah. for comics. And I'm utterly baffled why other big publishers aren't doing that more regularly. I feel like that would also help to really elevate the art in these books and save the bodies of the artists who are like killing themselves to meet monthly deadlines for sure yeah i I think it gives creators more space to play with like i there i've but again i feel there are some creators that like the limitation of a 22 page issue like here i've got two pages of recap i've got so many pages of setting up or advancing the story then i end on a cliffhanger blah 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 like that's a nice thing to do but I'm sure there are a lot of creators that would like to break out of that and experiment. And I think 
Brubaker and Phillips are so good at making comics together. What's really refreshing is to see them do these reckless books where they're not bound by those limitations of the single issues anymore. So yeah, like I think the the bigger it point here is that books should not live or die by their success as floppies. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I have noticed that um not not necessarily comic uh publishers but like book publishers, Scholastic Harper, places like that are are releasing like finished OGNs. Like they're not even trying to get into the single issue game. And I think that that's <laughs> helping DC and Marvel maybe consider that for other things. Um so I I like the the new uh the new movement toward that and and more just more comic publishers. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the growth in like comics sales it's all in trades and ogns and manga and yeah um yeah so that's definitely the i think the place where we're if the problem is we need new readers or like what kate was saying about like i can't single-handedly support the entire comic book industry financially like we need new readers Mm -hmm. uh that's definitely i think the entry point because uh there's a lot of readers they just don't want to engage in the like very archaic and complicated way that comics are sold right right yeah and uh it just it's gonna be curious since the the ya market is the biggest selling aspect of comics right now are those fans that are buying these these ogns uh are they gonna get older and want to start going to comic shops to buy single issues like i don't think that's gonna be a thing so yeah no yeah it also would be interesting too to see publishers experiment again with the format like that. I love uh, publishers like Drawn and Quarterly who are just doing OGNs. That's kind of like all they publish. They don't publish single yeah. issues, but the artists that are working for them are publishing in a variety of different formats. It could be a little digest sized book. It could be a 500 page soft cover. It could be an oversized it, playing with the format instead of ficking, sticking to the exact same uh, size format, which would again drive collectors nuts since there's they'd have to buy different size long boxes from these different <laughs> comics but but I, mean, I think that would open up i see dc doing that now with their black label books that are published magazine size and i think that's awesome that gives artists so much more freedom to stretch their 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 style for a bigger format book so I yeah know, I, I like with, with publish an experiment like that yeah. It's interesting, though, that there seems to really just be a tension between collectors and readers. And then, and of course, some people are both collectors and readers. Yeah. Like, I think, Paul, you're a collector and a reader. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of people out there who will just buy any book with Batman on it, stick it in a bag and board and never look at it again and just be happy knowing that it's in their closet. Right, right. And that's not going to do anything for the the medium or the, like industry there's also the aspect where you can't um i mean you can but it's unlikely that you're going to resell single issues um and they're not there it's very rare that something like a library or or a used bookshop would carry single issues so just the the idea of like passing the book on and have allowing it to find a new reader um especially if once it goes out of print like that's basically not going to happen with single issues Wait, you mean I'm not going to pay for my retirement with my long boxes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but I have so many number ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, especially since it is a thing where 
the overall collector market and not just readers, but the collector market is aging, right? There's not going to be, I don't think there's going to be a, a bunch of younger readers coming in and reading comics the same way like I do or people older than me do. Like that's, it doesn't seem like sustainable um, market. No, you know, the uh, kids are uh, like, how many that. Amazon rainforest acres are in your long boxes, bro? <laughs> like none of it. No, we, we would rather please have water. <laughs> 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 at least I've at least I've grown uh, to the point where I've stopped bagging my books. I'm like I don't need to keep buying all these plastic, plastic bags. Just, yeah. So, which, as I've said, is know. not great for your, if you want to like really preserve your works on paper. Plastic's exactly. not it anyway. Exactly. It's, it's basically just the idea of um, yeah. Because I mean, I, this is way off topic, but yeah, I've kind of realized like books published now are acid-free paper. They're going to be fine. So all of my Silver Age books, those are the ones I need to put in bags just to kind of protect them. But That's anything I'm buying now, like I'm not not that... Uh, and again, I like reading them. I hold on to them because uh, the idea is eventually I'll go back and reread them when I have time, right? So I, it's not a matter of them being pristine and collectible. It's a matter of me just having them at, at hand. So... You know, when I, but of course, when I do think about going back and reading stuff, I usually just look up on Hoopla first instead of digging through all these boxes. But that's a topic for another time. Um, right. <laughs> that's a whole, that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> something that uh, maybe is a good segue into another one of my grievances. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I know that like collectors and readers are two, there's like a Venn diagram and there's a lot of people in the overlap, but yeah. I tend to find that racist misogynist fan culture tends to almost exclusively fall on the extreme collector side of that Venn diagram. And uh, I know we've talked about this before, but it really seems like racist misogynist fan culture tends to be like super connoisseurial and, uh, I wonder if there one way that we could deprive them of oxygen is if we sort of like ramped down the collectible aspects of comics and focused more on the like reader aspect. Does that make sense? It it does. I I just wonder if the the reactionary vocal I think it's a very small group of people that are very vocal online that are spreading sort of misogyny and racism. But what does it's that because, mean? Like, what difference does that make? No, I'm, I'm saying they're, they're super vocal and small, but their defense is because it's not the version of the character that they grew up with. So I, I think it's less about, it's more gatekeeping than collectability at that point. So I don't think the solution necessarily would be elevating or marketing toward readers versus collectors. I think in my mind, the solution is having creators being more vocal and pushing back against it. I don't know. I think that's no, I think that's really unfair to put that on creators. <laughs> well, that's not no, their responsibility. It's, it's not their responsibility, but when when I see there are a handful of creators that I see push back and I really respect them when they do that. When it is like, you know, Neil Gaiman has been very vocal on Twitter and on social media, uh, pushing back against people that are criticizing the the Sandman TV show for, you know, for their casting choices. Yeah, but and Neil Gaiman is a white guy. If you you know, like I have friends who are not white guys who have yeah. tried to push back and and they oh, get sure. squatted. So yeah, yeah, no, that, uh, that's a fair point too. Yeah, um, but there are people that have a larger voice. Well, the thing is, you don't see editors or publishers making those those statements online. 
it's pretty rare. So maybe that's where it needs to come from a more, rather than individuals coming from the publisher themselves coming out and saying that stuff. I don't know. Well, I think what I'm saying is that the collector mindset (laughs) seems to be largely occupied. And again, like I know that there are people who who overlap, right? And they're collectors and they're readers. And I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the like connoisseurial assholes with YouTube shows, right? Like Mm -hmm. they, I think that there's a way you could deprive them of oxygen by simply giving them less of a piece of the pie. And so if comics focused more of their volume on reader friendly formats and less on new number ones new variant covers new Mm -hmm. like renumbering blah 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 all that stuff that really draws the collector mindset it will just give them less of a toehold in in the like hegemony of comics culture no okay that i i can that makes sense to me because the idea is that you know people uh have invested themselves financially and emotionally in this thing. And there are some people that are so reactionary, like, oh, this is something I own because I'm a collector. Yes, so any exactly. attempt to change that is an attack against me. And I'm going to lash out by being a piece of shit online. So there you go. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I see that point. So I think that's always strange to me when you see that visceral reaction against changes in comics. Like if a character changes or they, you know, they pass on the mantle of a legacy character to someone else who, you know, um, isn't just a, a white dude, right? When they make Captain America, when when Falcon takes over as Captain America and you get this big backlash, like publishers, publishers shouldn't back down from that choice, right? You know, Steve Rogers is always going to come back eventually, but maybe he shouldn't, right? Maybe let someone else be Captain America. I mean, that would defeat yeah. that, that reactionary response, I think. But I don't know. I, uh, yeah, the, the same people that complain that there's a She-Hulk because Hulk was male previously. <laughs> The history of She-Hulk as a character is a fascinating to say as an aside because it literally was just existed as uh, copyright um, establishing, so no one else could make a She-Hulk character. But then she ends up becoming an important character in her own right. So yeah. Anyway, going back to what you were saying about like who should be the ones to speak out um, against yeah. that kind of fan culture, I do think that the onus is on the publisher more than the individual people who create books, um, just because. A uh, publisher is a is a much bigger target and can absorb the vitriol much easier than an individual person. And sure. especially if you're like if you're writing, you know, I don't know, She Hulk, for example, like that's not your IP. You don't own that. You do right. not have enough skin in the game to be the target in that scenario. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's so strange to me because maybe it's because, you know, I've curated my social media feeds to be very uh, open and encouraging and diverse. You know, I very rarely see this sort of like really vile, you know, reactionary takes. So it's always shocking to me that there are people that still hold on to that stuff. It's like, shouldn't you should want more people to be reading comics? That's what we've been saying so far, this whole topic. So we want more people reading comics. And by, preventing that you're just killing the thing that you claim to love you know what i mean so yeah 
I don't think they want more people reading comics on equal footing. I think they want more people reading comics who are beholden to their expertise. Sure. Yeah. And so if you are creating things outside of their expertise, then that m- makes them seem less powerful in the, in their world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They no longer have the, the biggest piece of the pie anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's a, that's a big topic. So yeah. Uh, I guess the, the conclusion or one way to kind of, uh, summarize that is that no more racists or misogynists in fan culture, right? Yeah. We can just do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll figure out a way to get there. I have also curated my social media to just not include any of that somehow. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the magic wand was, but it's great. But again, I, th- I do think, I do think that is, in the grand scheme, comics and creators are far more encouraging than that small minority. But I mean, that minority is is uh, disruptive and has such a big uh, bullhorn. It can be, uh, you know, uh, it's bad. Obviously, it can be destructive. But I think overall, comics in general is way more accepting than that. But that reflects so right, especially now, yeah. like like the publisher, the same publishers that are like the big book publishers Macmillan had owns for a second and they like have this uh kind of this goal to put out books from from people who have not uh had the chance to publish like demographics that have not not had a stage before or topics that are that are not terribly uh numerous so far in the medium so i think that we're moving in the right direction but it's going to be yeah a fight you know i actually think that saying that they're a small minority mm-hmm. is doing the opposite of what people mm-hmm. hope to do when they say that because sure. if they're such a small minority they should not have so much of a voice in that's a good point in, on the in the in like the the culture so the yeah. fact that they're a small minority, I don't. I think that that's actually a problem that we probably would maybe on another ish, uh, another topic. I don't know, but like mm-hmm. that's maybe something to unpack because why yeah. does a small minority have so much power that they can threaten people that they feel so much um, like I don't know ownership over everything? Yeah, not great. Yeah, that, no, that, that's a good point. I mean. Yeah, I guess saying they're a minority is an attempt to take away their power, but that it's disproportionate. They're they're yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, yeah, I think that, that, that it, would... I think in a way that it like I, I know that it's very, it's well meaning, um, mm-hmm. but I think that it in some ways it can minimize the damage they actually do. Absolutely, yeah, that is a good point. Um, yeah, yeah, that this is a topic we could probably table at some point and kind of have a more deep uh, discourse about because i do think it is an issue and obviously it's uh yeah it is a problem um we should talk about porn i see porn on the list (laughs) yeah exactly tell us more about this kate (laughs) (laughs) wonderful um yeah okay so uh totally change of topic i have this problem uh where i go to the library as i do and I pick up some manga as I do, and then I take it home and I open it, and it's uh, very explicit, which I was not expecting. And uh, I, I just okay. So on one hand, I need to know uh, where I can look on the cover of this book for me to know that this is what I need to expect when I open it, and then also. I I figured out that if I go to the library, they keep the the explicit content in the adult section. So I need to exclusively borrow manga from the kids section. But if you go to like Barnes and Noble, 
all of this stuff is just mixed in together. Um, or if you're trying to like shop online or something, like sometimes you'll see an explicit tag, but most of the time that is not the case. So I just need to know, uh, and I need this. I need this problem <laughs> to be this clear. Is, <laughs> this is like one of my biggest pet peeves. I've so glad you brought this up and i because it makes me so mad when people are like why are you trying to police sexuality i'm not i just want to know what i'm getting yes. into it's information mm -hmm. we're not the police like i just want to know what right. i'm getting yeah. into some of it is so explicit that it is on the shelf wrapped in plastic but most of it is just explicit enough <laughs> that it makes me a little bit uncomfortable if i'm not expecting it and right. that's what i want to know about and also, it drives me crazy. Like, I love to hear that your library does make some gesture towards, like, putting the more mature stuff. I hate even using the word mature. I know. More explicit yeah. stuff. Because we'll, let's get to that point next. But, like, a lot of people do think that all manga is for kids. And yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, talk more about the issue of calling things mature. I love that. Yeah. Love well, problem. okay. So, for me... I want okay so if if you're looking at western comics the library and you go to the kids section it's just like basically YA comics but if you go to the adult section it's most of the comics including like like nonfiction comics about like the history of beer or somebody's autobiography um like John John Lewis's um um autobiography would be in that section adult nonfiction comics except that none of the manga that's in the adult section it has those more like just just older i guess older target audience comics um that i don't know i feel like there is like would you really want um the count of monte cristo manga adaptation in the kids section a kid's not gonna read that i mean maybe but like <laughs> it's maybe. huge yeah. It's mm -hmm. a little dry. Like it, it feels more like a book that somebody that is over 18 would want to pick up. But because it's not explicit manga, it's section it's put in like the kids section. And it's just yeah. it's this gray area that I feel like there's a better way to handle. Yeah, we definitely need to stop calling sexual content mature because most of the time it isn't. A lot of the times, especially what I've seen in manga, like it's actually very like sophomoric and like. I don't know. I, I don't think that it's mature at all. It just is explicit. So like, I wish that explicit, mature, and for kids could actually have mm. meaning yeah. <laughs> and be different. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, um, I guess it would be, it, it would be a sort of self-policing thing like the old comic code authority used to be where it's like publishers are putting content warnings on books, not as a way to, like you were saying, edit or or censor stuff, but at least give information to readers. Like when I watch a TV show on a streaming service, it says this show is rated blah 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 for you know adult sexual situations, nudity, blah blah, all that stuff. Um, why couldn't you just have that as a little corner box on a comic? Like, hey, this manga is going to have some tentacles in places. That, <laughs> yes, you know, um, just, exactly. Just let you know. So yeah, and I you can't I, really trust publishers though because they want to get reach their widest audience. Right. So they're going to try right. to game that right. to whatever they think is going to be the widest audience. And as I know, people are going to this is going to be a, a spicy one. This is a hot topic here, but okay. like, I do think, and I know it's problematic, 
but there is probably a way to make it better. There needs to be something like what they have for films where like an independent body has a set of criteria and they say, okay. And I hate that it's also like, it doesn't need to be age-based. Don't make it age-based. Just say what the content is. Like this has this kind of spicy content and it has this kind of violence and it has suicide warning, like trigger warning. Like just Mm -hmm. tell me on the cover what is in there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And they're, they're, okay. So there are some manga that I've seen that do have some kind of like, this is, uh, this is for teens, which is, is age based, which is not great. But I mean, so there are publishers that do try to tell you, hey, this is for adults, this is for YA, this is for kids, whatever on the back, but it is not. Uh, every book by any means and it's not terribly informative yeah right the cultural differences in what is considered for teens in japan versus the u.s that really plays into that really it just comes down to consent like Mm -hmm. we're just Mm -hmm. we want to consent to the content that we're about to engage with that's all right that is yeah uh yeah that's very quotable (laughs) good point (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I do think, yeah, again, instead of framing it as a type of uh, censorship or controlling, the idea of just giving consumers the most information that they can have before they buy something, definitely the way to put it. Yeah, I think I like that. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of hot takes, I have a very hot take that I would like to get off my chest right now. It might be a surprise to some listeners. There are too many Batman books. I'll say what? it. <gasps> I love Batman. Um <laughs> But every time I'm filling out my previews order every month, there are so many bat books and a lot of them look really good and I want to buy them all, but I can't, you know? Um, so that's part of it. Part of it is selfish. Yep. Part this, of it this, is... <laughs> this wraps up into my point that there needs to be more time for us to read comics in the world. <laughs> exactly. We need a pocket dimension um, for reading. <laughs> I want to read all these books. They all look so interesting. I can't afford all of them. I know I can. I've reached the point where it's like if there is a Batman miniseries that looks interesting, I'm just going to trade weight it, which I kind of don't like doing normally, but that's the necessity of it. Um, the other thing is that I feel like when you have publishers putting so much focus on a particular character, a particular IP, that necessarily takes away from other more interesting stuff they could be publishing. You know, and I I know I'm using Batman as my example because I mainly read DC books, but I'm sure Marvel fans could probably say, yeah, like, maybe we could cut back on these some Spider-Man titles or some X-Men titles, you know, please, and maybe have please, some more yes. interesting stuff being published instead. So because you know what that actually yeah. does? Like, so you're a Bat- Batman super fan and you're fatigued by it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I refuse to even pick up a Batman book because I'm just like. There's too many. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you choose? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess the operatic I, I one. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Be reading Detective. I would say right now, um, the two main Batman titles, Batman and Detective Comics, are fantastic. So, if you are looking to jump in, start with those. They have recently <laughs> had new creative teams. That's my pitch. But, you know, there's so many tangential titles that just like, yeah. If there is a creative team I'm interested in, yeah, I'm going to check it out. But I'm finding myself just not buying a lot of stuff because it's eating away my pocketbook and it's eating away from time and energy I have for other comics that I'd like to read. So again, a person cannot sustain themselves on Batman alone. And I feel that might be shocking for fans to hear me say, but yeah, I, I do believe that. <laughs> you know what? I'll take I'll take the hot take a step, a, a spice level up. We're going to like, I don't know, what is it? Like ghost okay. pepper it. Um, it yeah. I I think that creators need to uh, maybe 
I don't know, step away from the idea that playing with other people's IP is the height of their career. Like, don't be a don't be a company man. Pardon, pardon my phrase. I love you all. I'm not don't don't be a Disney adult. Okay. Like <laughs> I understand if you have like deep nostalgia for Batman, but if you're a good writer, go write your own stuff. Like go make your own books. Go and like mm-hmm. take your own risks. Yeah. I just feel I mean, I and there's look, there's nothing wrong with being a Disney adult and there's nothing wrong with writing Batman, but right. I do think that part of the reason why it's oversaturated is because there's like a whole bunch of like people who never like there's a bunch of Peter Pans in comics and they think that that's like the height of their career and they never move past that. Yeah, I I would say that I I feel like that attitude might have has been shifting the past uh 10, 15 years where you're seeing people like a Scott Snyder or a Jeff Lemire who will work for Marvel or DC, but now have earned enough sort of um, uh, capital, not not you know, little money, but just creative capital to do creator owned projects for other publishers. So I think there is a shift where people are, you, the idea is like you worked in independent books, you worked on your own stuff until you got a gig at Marvel or DC and that was it. I feel like that has been shifted where it's like people will work for Marvel and DC, live their childhood dream by writing Batman or Superman or Spider-Man, and then eventually get burned out. It's like, well, now I have enough experience and creative capital. Now I can go self-publish something and people will follow me there. So I think that is changing, but it still might be a problem. There was a great moment of that where like the... um the refugees as as I think mm. they used to be called before that all went to hell. Um, right. Like Kelly Sue and fraction and you know, right. all those people, yeah. they like did their stint at Marvel and then they went and just did their own thing. And I feel like mm-hmm. that kind of went away and maybe it's okay. coming back, but yeah. like, I don't know. Yeah. But I, I do, I do think that attitude in general, I guess the, 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 the segue out of that is saying like, well, you need to have a way for, your readers and followers to follow you then, right? Since so much of the market's being made up by these big three publishers, if you move from one of them to do your self-published book, you really have to have a fan base that will follow you there. Right? You know what I mean? You also have to have talent and creativity. (laughs) Shots fired. Yeah. Yes. Uh, There we go. Wow, this is a pretty spicy episode. So (laughs) I like it. I like it when Mike's away. Yeah, when Mike's gone. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think there's a lot of good issues here. And I think, you know, we've, we've, we've offered some suggestions on how to fix these issues. Um, I think that's always the goal. It's easy to critique and it's easy to uh, tear things down. But part of the, the other part of being a fan, I think is also celebrating the things that are working and offering or looking for ways to make everything better. So I think that's where I, we want to end on a positive note after doing a scorched earth, spicy hot take <laughs> on some of this stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we, we've t- we've uh, touched a lot of issues. Hopefully we have not lost any listeners by doing this. So um, <laughs> uh, before we wrap it up, do you have any final thoughts or one last grievance or one last positive thing maybe to, uh, to say before we wrap it up? I just need more time in my day for all of my hobbies <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough um yeah I, I i think as i said earlier i think overall comics are a very welcoming and positive place and i i i, I think it's trending that way and i'm encouraged by by that so yeah and we're part of that i hope so 
Um, next week, if the show does indeed come back after this, uh, I will be back <laughs> with Mike and Nick. Uh, we're just doing a no topic issue. We'll probably talk about to- comics. Maybe we'll talk about our favorite breakfast cereals. It's wide open. We'll find out when we get here. Um, in the meantime, you can find all of us on social media. You can find Kate at uh, Kate L. Fear, I believe, on Twitter and Tia at Portrait of Madam X. I'm over there at Ojai Polly. The show is at IRCB Podcast. That is on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. We are, have our finger on the pulse of the youth over there on TikTok. <laughs> This episode first aired on Patreon and is possible because of our wonderful patrons. Join today for exclusive series like the IRCB Movie Club, Saga of Saga, and more. You can join now at patreon.com slash Podcast. If you haven't already, please rate and review our show. Five stars would be awesome on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, yes, they actually have ratings and wherever you listen to podcasts because... We deserve it, and you want more of our spicy hot takes. (laughs) And you can join the IRCB Discord community to chat comics and more. Plus, you can listen live to our shows every week. Um, Check out the link to our Discord in the show notes. Podcasts are best spread by word of mouth. I can't believe we haven't changed the wording for that yet because it is super (laughs) not it in the pandemic. But anyway, tell your friends about the show. um, Tell your your local comic shop, and uh, we would really appreciate it. Infinity Shred is the best band in the known universe and do all the music for all of our shows. Xander is here, there, and everywhere your ears can hear. I want to thank Tia and Kate for joining me today as I filled in for Mike. I want to thank Kara for doing the proof listening and uh, correcting anything that we may, any mistakes we might have. Thank you for listening to this episode. And until next time, remember comics are good, and so are you. Mm-hmm.